Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and tonight we study verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. We are studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which was written from Rome between the years 60 and 62 A.D. From Rome between the years 60 and 62 A.D. And those of you that have been through the study of the book of Acts, when they remember what was going on in, with Paul in Rome in the year 60 to 62 A.D., what was significantly going on in his life at that time? He was in prison, exactly. And Paul writes four letters while he's in prison. We call them the prison epistles. He writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Philippians, I'm sorry, Ephesians and Colossians are essentially sister letters. And if they're not sister letters, they're at least cousin letters. They cover much of the same information. Philippians is a unique epistle all its own, and so is certainly is Philemon. But Paul is busy when he's in prison in Rome. For those years, he's not just—he's uh, not just sitting around. He is receiving visitors. This is not his final imprisonment. His final imprisonment took place probably late '67, early '68. Totally different from this one. Totally different. In this imprisonment, where he's writing these four prison epistles, he's receiving visitors on a regular basis. He's giving the gospel not only to the visitors, but the guards that are there watching him are listening to the gospel as well. And it's a very, very, very fruitful ministry. While Acts doesn't record it, we understand that Paul was released from prison, approximately 62, ministered for about six more years in the Roman Empire, writes First and Second Timothy and Titus, and then finally, actually when he writes Second Timothy, he's in prison in Rome, he's taken outside the city of Rome and beheaded probably in the spring of A.D. 68. Now, what, I don't know if this helps you, but one thing I like to do is, is to try to figure out how old people are at different times. You could, you could pretty well figure out how old Paul is by the, the years that he writes these things. Give or take a year or two, Paul is probably between 60 and 62 when he writes the prison epistles. He's about 68 when he goes to be with the Lord. In other words, you can track through his life. He's about 49 when he visited Galatia for the first time, or actually comes back and writes Galatia. So he's about 48 when he visits the region of Galatia. I don't know if that helps you, but it helps me as well. Paul was probably around the same age as our Lord. Then our Lord, of course, had been crucified some 30 years before this. So he writes the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon from Rome while he's in prison, but this is a house arrest. In the first verse, we see that Paul stresses his apostolic authority, his apostolic authority, and then he introduces this phrase, in Christ. And we spent a bit of time there in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, on the phrase, in Christ, what it means to be positionally set apart, or to be positionally sanctified. We also sometimes hear this referred to as being in union with Christ. This is an extremely important theological concept that he will hit time after time after time in his letter to the Ephesians. Because you see, the underlying purpose of the letter to the Ephesians is to promote unity in the Ephesian church. And what better way to promote unity among individuals than to tell them, listen, or to make sure they understand, we're all part of the same family. And families ought not to fight. Now, families do fight a lot of times in, in terms of human families, but they ought not to. I have a reason to get along with you because we're both part of the same family. We're both adopted into the same family, as we saw last week. We're children of the same Father. And the same Lord saved us all. We're all in union with Christ, and we're part of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says, For by means of one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Remember that? For by means of one spirit. We call that the Spirit's baptism. And the Spirit's baptism, at the moment of faith, takes each of us and lifts us up from where we are and then places us into union with Christ, into the body of Christ. Now, understanding that 
it should be easier, at least theoretically, it should be easier for us to get along in the body of Christ when we realize that we're all saved the same way. We're saved by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. None of us earned it. None of us deserved it. All of us were in the same boat before we came to salvation. All of us, get this, this is very important, all of us were equally condemned. And we may say, no, wait a minute, I was, I was not that bad. I mean, Adolf Hitler, yes, I can see where he was absolutely condemned, but I wasn't nearly as bad as him. I've got to tell you, in God's eyes, this is a shocker, but this is going to help you maybe more than anything I say tonight. In God's eyes, before we came to Christ, we were equally as condemned as Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin, or Paul Pot, or whoever you want to put as some of the worst human beings who have ever lived. No jokes here. No current people need to be mentioned. We, <laughs> now, it wasn't a joke. But, but, but the point is, it doesn't matter who you've got in mind. As the worst person on this planet, we were in just the same shape that they were. And until we get that, we won't really understand grace, because in the back of my mind, if I think it was a little easier for Christ on the cross to save me than it was for him to provide salvation for Adolf Hitler... As soon as we think that, we've lost. We're finished. You'll never, you'll never properly relate to grace. And I'm going to tell you something, too. We'll never get along in the body of Christ if we, if we have this pecking order. And there is too much of a pecking order in the body of Christ. In the body of Christ, there is no male and female. There's no slave or free. There's no Greek or Jew. Now, what that means, certainly there are males and females in terms of their, their, uh, their genetics, their, their physicality in the body of Christ. But there's no pecking order there. There's no distinction between male and female. Yes, when you, there are people who have a Jewish background, and they come to Christ, they're still Jewish with regard to their genetics, but in the body of Christ, there's no distinction there. And slave and free, there's no economic distinction in the body of Christ. Don't we do that a lot, though? Don't we just almost subconsciously do that? Especially with Christians who have extreme wealth. Some, sometimes, subconsciously, we start putting them on a little bit of a pedestal, and, and it's nothing new because they used to do that in the ancient church as well. That's why James says, hey, listen, well, woe to you guys that give the, the guy with the gold ring the front row seat. And tell the guy that's the beggar, you've got to go sit all the way in the back. Now, today it would be reversed, but you get the, kind of the, you get the idea. Well, woe unto you that show favoritism based upon gender, based upon race, or based upon economic status. In the body of Christ, we're all there by the same, by the same means, by grace, through faith, alone in Christ alone. We all were equally condemned. So we see Paul stresses his apostolic authority, and then we, we spend a, a bit of time on what it means to be in Christ. And by the way, we're gonna, we're, that's not the last time we'll cover it, because it comes up over and over and over again in, in the book of Ephesians. Now, Paul goes on to stress in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that God is worthy to be praised. Now, sometimes this sentence gets so long and on a, on a casual reading, so convoluted, that we read it, and then we read it again, and then it's kind of like doing an assignment in school. You read it, and then you look up, and, and you think, what, it was that I, what was it I just read? Well, the next time you read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, remember this. It's one long sentence. It's one long sentence. That's true. In the, in the English test, they have some punctuation that, that, that indicates that maybe it's not. But it's all about this. It's about this one phrase. God is worthy to be praised. Now, if you read it through that lens, it'll make a lot more sense. And eight years from now, ten years from now, 20, 30, if you're still around by then, when somebody asks you what's Ephesians chapter 1 about, especially that long sentence, what was, what was that about anyway? God is worthy to be praised. Now, it's going to list a lot of reasons why he's worthy. 
And then once you go back, you can open the text and review. At that point, you'll, you'll see some of the reasons why it is, but God is worthy to be praised. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence in the Greek text made up of 202 words. 202 words. Now, this man was brilliant. We don't think that way anymore. In fact, most of the time today, if we're going to write an article for like a newsletter or something that we would really like to be read, you know the maximum amount of words you're really supposed to use? At least most people say 300. This, this sentence has 200 words in it all by itself. This would, this would have been stricken from any editor, any modern editor. They would never have let this one in. But it's a beautiful sentence. It's not a rambling sentence, as some might like to say. It's actually a beautiful sentence. And in this sentence, there is a structure, although the structure is difficult to ascertain, especially difficult. And in fact, I have a, a confession I make. I don't typically make my confessions out loud, but this one concerns you, so I'll make it to you. I was getting discouraged in my preparatory study for this because this sentence is challenging. And I don't say that to make you feel sorry for me. I'm just saying it was a, it's a challenging sentence. I, the more I studied it, the more difficult it became. So I started looking up other people's views of, of how they structured the sentence. I quit counting at over 40. I'm talking about scholars, scholars over the course of the history of the church. Over 40 different ways people have structured this passage. So I didn't feel quite so bad after that, that it was a challenge. And, and, but, but one of the things, one of the things that they all agree to is this, that the Father is being mentioned of worthy to be praised in verses 4 through 6. The Father is worthy to be praised, that's verses 4 through 6, and we studied that last time. The Father is worthy to be praised, verses 4 through 6. Our subject, at least we begin the subject tonight, verses 7 through 12, the Son is worthy to be praised. Verses 7 through 12, the Son is worthy to be praised. And then finally, in verses 13 through 14, the Holy Spirit is worthy to be praised. And Paul's obviously excited as he writes this anthem of praise. He's not just rambling on, if some have um, very unkindly suggested, I think. He's not just rambling on, but, but he's using a multiplicity of words. They just keep flowing one right after the other because he's excited he wants to praise God in this incredible plan that he has for us and all these incredible things that he did. And you can just tell by the writing, he is jacked up. He is excited about this. And that's why he just starts firing them off, one right after the other, all the wonderful things that God has done. So in spite of the fact that the overall structure is difficult to outline, perhaps to chart or to break down, it is a challenge, I'll admit that. At least these three things we know, that the Father is spoken of as worthy to be praised in verses 4 through 6. The Son is worthy to be praised, verses 7 through 12. And finally, the Holy Spirit is worthy to be praised in verses 13 through 14. He is excited. God is worthy to be well spoken of. He's worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be worshipped. And then in verse 3, which is a summary statement for the rest of the long sentence, God is to be praised because he has bestowed every spiritual blessing on the believer in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It didn't take us long before we came through that word again, did it, or that phrase. We saw it in verse 1, now we see it again in verse 3. Now, hang in there with me as we read through this long sentence. It's a challenge, but hang in there with me. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us 
in the beloved. Now that's the father section, remember? Now we're going to start the son section in verse 7. In him, this is in the beloved, in the son, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. I almost get out of breath saying that. Do you see how excited he is? It's just like he's firing them off, one right after another, one right after another, and he's not finished. Look at what he says about the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, did you see how each of those sections ends with that same word? To the praise of his glory in verse 6 as it ends the Father's section. To the praise of his glory in verse 12 as we end the Son's section. And then to the praise of his glory in verse 14 as we end the section on the Holy Spirit. Now, in verses 4 through 6, we studied last time that the Father is worthy to be praised... Because he's done three things. The Father is worthy to be praised because he's done three things. Now, he's done a whole lot more than this. But this is just what's on Paul's mind, being motivated by the Holy Spirit right now. He elected us, he predestined us, and he adopted us. He elected us, and he predestined us, and he adopted us. He adopted us into a very personal and privileged relationship with him. If you'll allow me, I'd like to call it the Abba relationship. Now, Abba is a very tender Aramaic word for father. Now, some would translate it. I don't really have a problem with it. Some would translate it daddy. The, the way that we use that English word daddy. Others would say that's maybe a little bit too maudlin. But I kind of like it. it. It tells us that we're in a personal relationship with our father, our heavenly father. And we can go to, his, to, to our heavenly father and call out upon him any time we would desire to do so. As Lewis Perry Chafer put it, And in his book, He That Is Spiritual, he said, He, the Father, is the most tender-hearted Father in all the universe. And isn't that somewhat of of, of an ironic paradox? He is the creator of the universe, the most powerful being in the universe. And at the same time, he is the most tender-hearted Father in all the universe. What a great God we served. You can see why Paul is getting excited. Because he really loves God. There are things that excite all of us. If we can't get excited about a father who created the universe and still lets us call him daddy when we need to, you're not going to get excited about anything worthwhile. The father's plan to elect, to predestine, and to adopt could only be accomplished through Jesus Christ. It's therefore fitting that Paul now moves on to assert in verses 7 through 12 that Jesus is worthy to be praised. Remember, in verses 4 through 6, the Father is worthy to be praised. Why? Because he elected us, predestined us, and adopted us. Okay? He elected us, he predestined us, and he adopted us. So the Father is worthy to be praised. We, we, we could stop and sing right now, couldn't we? He's just, if, if, nothing, if he did nothing else for us, isn't that enough? Good night, and the list is not even halfway finished. But now Paul is going to declare 
that through Jesus, through Jesus, God provides redemption for us. He provides wisdom into the mystery of his will. And he recognizes the inheritance of the believer through association with Christ. So through Jesus, now, now we're going to see why Jesus is worthy to be praised according to this rapid fire list that the Apostle Paul gives us. In verse 7, our verse for tonight, and this is as far as we'll be able to get because redemption is such an incredibly large topic. But he provides redemption for us. God provides through Jesus redemption for us. And then in verses 8 through 10, he provides wisdom. Wisdom into the mystery of his will in verses 8 through 10. And then finally in verse 11, he recognizes the inheritance of the believer through association with Christ. Let me skip ahead just just for a second because this is so great. Not only does he adopt you as his child, but you become a sharer in the inheritance of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good deal. Some people on earth get a financial inheritance and others don't. Some, some inherit a legacy, which I think is probably even better than a financial inheritance. But it, just in case you're not going to get any money from your folks at all or your grandfolks or whoever it may end up being, just realize this. Your Abba, your, your dad, your heavenly father, he set you up with an inheritance that is so far and above anything you could ever ask or think that it is just absolutely almost beyond words. So, Jesus provides for our redemption. Verse 7, he, he provides wisdom into the mystery of his will. Verses 8 through 10, and he recognizes the inheritance of the believer through association with him, through, with, uh, association through Christ. The words in him, as verse 7 begins, in him is literally in whom. But I don't have any problem with the in him. It, it probably makes it easier to understand. Most of rivals will have a little footnote there. In whom, and it refers back to verse 6, the term beloved. Now, the term beloved obviously refers to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. In him, we have, in him we have redemption. Now this is one of the three great doctrines of soteriology. We, we list them as redemption, reconciliation, and propitiation. Now there are others, but those are certainly the big three. So the first thing that we praise Jesus for, that we're... We prove that Jesus is willing or is worthy to be praised for. He has provided redemption. The word used here for redemption is one of several that's used in the New Testament, but the one that's used here is apolutrosis, apolutrosis. And in this context, in this context, it means the payment of a ransom, the payment of a ransom to secure the release of something or someone, the payment of a ransom to res- to secure the release of something or someone. We were ransomed from our position of condemnation and set free by the work of Christ on the cross. That's what did it. Not because we've been good. Not because we've tried to be good, but maybe we just couldn't, but we've been trying to be good. That's not why we were set free. I want you to notice the purchase price that God had to pay to get us out of that slave market of sin, if you will, was his own son's death. Peter makes the same point in his first epistle. We were not redeemed with silver and gold from our empty manner of life, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the land without spot and without blemish. That was the purchase price. Remember that. 
the next time you get to feeling down, and we all do, there's nobody in this room, I would challenge you, there's nobody in this room that has, has gone completely through the night and never gets to feeling down. Never get to feeling like, hey, everything's starting to pile up against me. You know, I'm, I'm never going to get this accomplished. I don't know why God's letting this happen to me. I'm not saying you get sassy with God, but we all get down from time to time. Because you just pile on. Have you ever done this one in the middle of it? Nobody loves me. Remember the price that was paid for you. Because the price that is paid for something reflects the value that the purchaser puts on it. As far as I know, and as some of you art historians could correct me, but as, as far as I know, Van Gogh died and never really realized any of the true worth from all his paintings. In fact, I think his brother uh, Theo died as well without ever realizing any of that money. It was actually Theo's widow that started selling some of Van Gogh's paintings. You know what those things go for now? I'll, oh, tens of millions. Closer to a hundred million, some of them. Because people place a value on that. Now, I've got to tell you, when I was in Amsterdam a decade or so ago, and I had a choice to, a chance to see the Van Goghs or the Rembrandts, I went to the Rembrandt exhibit. But I'll tell you what, now after having studied Van Gogh a bit, if, if I ever got a chance to see some of his stuff, and I've seen some of it, but I, I'd go see that too. I can kind of see now. I'm starting to understand why people would place a high value on that. And the reason they, place a high, the reason they pay a high price for it is because they value it very much. Now think about this for a minute. We said that the price that was paid to purchase our salvation wasn't silver and gold from our empty manner of life. We, don't, we, miss, we miss the beauty of this way too often. That's why we get down on ourselves. You know, what he, you know the value that is being placed. You realize that you're the Van Gogh? God's buying you with the death of his son. He bought you. That's how much he values you. He loved you. He still does. What more has he got to do to prove it? He's got to give you a new car? Is that what's going to prove to, to, to you that God loves you? Maybe a new house? Maybe restore you to health? Whatever it may be. Is that what he's got to do? Hasn't he already done everything he could do to show you how much he loves you? It's you. He paid that price to ransom you. That's how much he valued you and me. He loved me. He loved me that much that he would send his son that which he, that's which he valued more than anything else in life. He gave it all up. Here, take it all. Now we're going to see in a minute which direction the ransom was paid and which direction it was not paid. But the purchase price is as high as it gets. The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is an important theological phrase. And as one respected Greek scholar put it, the blood of Christ is a pregnant verbal symbol representing the entirety of the work that Christ did on the cross. Now that's a mouthful, so I put it up on the board for you. It's a pregnant verbal symbol for the entirety of the saving work of Christ on the cross. There are certain denominations that get, if I may, without being offensive in any way, and I don't mean to be, but, but they get a little silly about the phrase, the blood of Christ. And... You know, some will say that, that an angel carried some of the blood, uh, carried, caught some of the blood in a, in a container and carried it up to heaven and 
and, and presented it to the Father, and that's what provided our salvation. Others will, will get real mystical about the idea of the blood of Christ. Well, you, they're, they're missing the boat. In the New Testament, the blood of Christ is a pregnant, meaning it, it is expanse with meaning, is a pregnant verbal symbol that represents the entirety of everything Christ had to do to purchase our salvation. The whole thing. Not just the literal blood in his veins. It wasn't just his physical death that did it. There was more that went on on the cross than just his physically dying. There was more that went on there. He was judged for our sins. He died a spiritual death on the cross as well. Now, I'm not in any way downplaying the importance of the physical death of Christ on the cross. Of course not. But what happened on the cross was more than just a bleed out. In fact, I think it can be fairly well established just from forensic medicine, looking back at the records, that Jesus didn't bleed to death on the cross. If he had bled to death, the, the, the soldier's spear would not have done what it did. We've studied that one in our Life of Christ series. So the blood of Christ is a pregnant verbal symbol signifying the entirety of his saving work on the cross. It's much more than just the physical death. Sometimes we wish it was just the physical death because we can get our hands around that. But it was so much more. He had to pay the price in spiritual death for my sins. He paid that terrible, terrible, terrible punishment that was due to me. And I would remind you of this. You remember Christ on the cross, uh, throughout the trials, the brutality of that, the scourgings, uh, nails going through his hands and his feet. The text never says he screamed out. Now, he may have, but the text never tells us that. The text never emphasizes that he screamed until he came in contact with our sin. Till he began to be judged for our sin. That's what caused him to scream. Don't you ever think again nobody loves you. What has God got to do to show you that he loves you? He values you. He places the highest possible value on you as an individual. Not because you had inherent value. This is the, one of the mysteries of the universe. Why he did this, I have no idea. Because Paul tells us very clearly in Romans chapter 5, we were his enemies before we came to Christ. But while we were his enemies, Christ died as a substitute for us. Next time you're having a bad day, and it may come tomorrow, it may come tonight, think about that. Satan never lets us go. He's always on top of us. The phrase, the forgiveness of sins, stands in what grammarians call, it's, it's an apposition to redemption and further explains redemption. One of the things that happens when God purchases us out of this slave market of sins, he says, you're forgiven. So forgiveness is part of the idea of redemption. To be redeemed means that our sins have been forgiven. Our sins have been forgiven. It doesn't mean sin is no longer an issue in the Christian life. Of course, sin is an issue. A lot of ink is spilled in the New Testament on that. But sin is no longer the issue. The sin issue has been taken care of. All you have to do is trust Christ. Now, if you decide not to trust Christ, then it's still a big issue for you because you're going to have to deal with that on your own. But that is so incredibly sophomoric, it's incredibly, if you'll allow me, moronic to pay the penalty for your own sins when it's already been paid. When all you've got to do is humble yourself and say, Father, I trust Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and grant me eternal life. I know I can't do it on my own. But it's hard for people to quit trying. It's hard for them to. Jesus Christ paid the penalty that we all owed. And that frees God the Father to be able to forgive us. And why do I say to be able to? Because he can't just turn the other way. He can't just turn the other cheek when it comes to sin. It would be a violation of his holy character. So some price had to be paid when Christ paid it. And finally, at the end of the verse, we see 
Once again, this wonderful idea of grace according, according to the riches, the riches of his grace. It was strictly grace, unmerited favor. I used the Van Gogh illustration a moment ago to try to get you an idea of value, but don't take that too far. Because we may say, well, that Van Gogh had inherent value, so therefore the person was willing to pay it. We had a different kind of value before God. Don't ever forget that we were his enemies while he saved us. That's how much he loved you. He knew you, and he loved you in spite of the fact of all the things that we've done. Haven't you ever talked to somebody about the gospel, and and they say something like this, Well, Bruce, I'd love to accept Christ but you have no idea what I've done. Haven't you talked to somebody like that? Most all of us have. You have no idea what I've done. And depending upon what circles you run in, that the no idea what, what they might have done might actually shock you pretty badly. You know, some people just say that. Other people have really done some things that, that are truly shocking. You know what? You know what I tell them? I don't care what you've done. And that gets their attention. You don't care what I've done. No, I don't care what you've done because whatever you did, Christ already paid that penalty. That's been taken care of. You don't have to pay the penalty of that for yourself. You can turn it, turn your eyes upon Christ and accept the payment that he made. You mean even if I've done all these things? Yes, even if you've done all those things. You know, because you, you can't outsend the grace of God. Grace, grace, even more grace. Now, there is a bit of a debate, and I want to cover it fairly quickly, and that is, to whom was the ransom paid? To whom was the ransom paid? Under the ransom theory, now we talked about this a few months ago, at least in our soteriology series, perhaps it was maybe a year ago, so maybe some of you have forgotten. But under under a, a concept called the ransom theory, which was first popularized by an early church father by the name of Origen, Christ's death was paid to Satan. His death was paid to Satan to purchase human beings who were in captive to sin. And then since this price was paid to Satan, who were in captive to sin, then uh, God was able to set us free. Now this theory falls very, very short for a, a number of reasons, but what's the biggest? You tell me. Exactly. <laughs> There's nothing owed to Satan. <laughs> nothing. We don't owe Satan anything. God didn't owe Satan anything. No debt was owed to him. So the ransom theory falls very, very short. As Anselm said, Satan was owed nothing but punishment. So we reject Origen's view in spite of the fact that many have held it over the course of the history of the church. Some big names have. The biggest name of all was probably Augustine. According to Norm Geisler, Augustine held it. You can look at his writings. And Augustine seemed to hold this view. By the way, the ransom theory was rejected for centuries. After Augustine, essentially it was rejected for centuries. But it's made a bit of a comeback now. And that's why I bring it up at all. And the comeback is occurring in certain Pentecostal circles, especially some of the Pentecostals that you see on, on television, the, the big names. So just, just be very, very careful when you hear this kind of theory. Remember this, Satan was owed nothing but punishment. He, he wasn't owed your me. The, the debt was paid, but it wasn't paid to Satan. Orthodox Christianity, Orthodox Christianity holds to a substitutionary atonement view, meaning that the death that Christ died paid a ransom to the Father for sin. The ransom was paid to himself for sin. 
His was the holiness that was violated, not Satan's. Please, Satan, Satan had no holiness to, to violate at, at that point. It was a debt we owed, but it was a debt we couldn't pay. Christmas is coming pretty soon, and, and, and I hope I get, a, I get one like this every year or two, but I, one of my favorite Christmas cards says something like this. He came to pay a debt that he didn't owe because we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. I think that's one of the most beautiful Christmas phrases that there is. So the debt was owed to God, not to Satan. And we call this the substitutionary theory of the atonement, meaning, meaning that the death Christ paid, the death that he died, the price that he paid, was a debt that I owed. So you see, I should have had to pay that debt. The problem was if I had to pay the debt, I would, there would have been nothing left to save. But with Christ there was, because Christ was sinless going into it. Now Norman Geisler lists 12 points of validation for the orthodox view of atonement and redemption in systematic theology. I use them tonight with only slight modification. And I'll apologize ahead of time to Dr. Geisler. If there's anything you see on that list and you don't like it, it's the modification I made. Don't hold it against Dr. Geisler. But I use them tonight with only slight modification. For purposes of time, I've given you these in handout form. Let's just go through these in the 11 minutes that we have left tonight. First, God's absolute justice demands a perfect substitute for us since he can't just overlook sin. We've been studying that on Sunday mornings, haven't we? Something had to be done. Adam and Eve sinned. If they, wanted to have, if they wanted to have any kind of eternal fellowship with God, a price had to be paid. Something had to be paid, and Adam and Eve couldn't do it. Neither could you or I. His perfect holiness precludes him from just looking upon sin with some sort of approval or just looking the other way. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says just that. Habakkuk says, Thine eyes are too pure to approve evil, and thou cannot look upon wickedness with favor. It's an impossibility for him. We can do it because we have fallen natures. We ought not to do it, but sometimes we do. Ravi Zechariah said it so beautifully, you can tell a lot about a culture by what it celebrates. When a culture as a whole when a culture celebrates murderers, I don't care what, how many lead pieces of legislation that murderer has promoted since then, that tells you a lot about a culture. It tells us we've become a very pragmatic culture. To heck with principle, let's just get her done. Well, we're going to get what we deserve if we continue to celebrate that kind of thing. Second, our total depravity demands a sinless substitute for our sins. Now, I think you know what I'm talking about. I won't, I won't elaborate any further. But there, that, that is not a wild statement I made a moment ago. If you leave somebody in a car to save yourself that the coroner says was alive for at least two hours in that car, and you could have rescued her, I, that's murder in my book. Forgive me, but that's murder. If you're a fan, then, then, then you, need a new, you need a new object of your fan, fandom. <laughs> Second, our total depravity demands a sinless substitute for our sins because nothing we can do measures up to God's standards. Nothing. There was only one qualified redeemer, and that's Jesus Christ. None of us could have done it. Peter could have raised his hand and said, You know what? I don't want you to die. You don't deserve to die. I'll do it. Incinerate me, and I'll die. Moses tried that once, didn't he? So just kill me. Kill me and let all of them live and then be rightly related to you. But God said, Moses, you're not able to do that. Third, the Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices imply substitutionary atonement since 
The one making the offering laid his hands on the animal, symbolizing the transfer of guilt. That was an Old Testament symbol. Leviticus 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance of the tent meeting so that it is acceptable to the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. You see, you had an animal. The, the penitent sinner would go place the hand on the animal, symbolizing my sins are now being transferred to this animal, and then this animal was killed. You see the, you see the vivid imagery, the sanguine imagery, the bloody imagery of that? It wasn't by accident. God wanted the Israelites to know the severe price that had to be paid for sin. Now, we don't do animal sacrifice anymore because we look back on the cross. They were looking forward to the cross. We have the vision of the cross in our heads. That should be brutal enough, isn't it? Fourth, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 through 6, speaks explicitly about substitutionary suffering in several phrases. For example, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. It's as, as though, picture this, if this will help you. It's as though Jesus Christ was kneeling here. And we came up as a sinner and we placed our hands on his head and transferred our sins onto him. And then he was executed. You see, you see the vivid imagery. The vivid imagery. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It would be blasphemous for us to go lay our hand on Christ's head. But what happened is the Lord took all of our sins and he laid it upon the head of Christ. And Christ paid that penalty. What Christ did was for us. Our sins were laid on him. You see the idea of substitution there. This is the idea of substitutionary atonement and redemption. Fifth, Jesus was presented, Jesus was presented as the Passover lamb, a substitutionary sacrifice. Just as the Old Testament Passover lamb was sacrificed for their sins, even so Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's Paul's word. That's Paul's phraseology in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. John the Baptist declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My sin is now placed upon him. In Luke chapter, uh, sorry, John chapter 1, verse 29. Six, Jesus claimed, Jesus himself claimed to be a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 which portrayed the substitutionary sacrifice. He said, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. He's referring to Isaiah 53 there. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Sometimes people like to say Isaiah 53 is not about Jesus. It's about the nation Israel. Jesus said it was about him. So it really all boils down to can we believe Jesus or not. That ends the discussion. If he's believable, it's about him. And he's believable. Seventh, Jesus presented his death as a ransom. That's why he portrayed it. He, again, he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He used the term. That's a different term. We have apolutrosis here. He used the term lutron, which is, you can see, the similar sounding. Eighth, Christ presented himself as a consecrated priest and sacrifice. He said in John 17, verse 19, For them I sacrifice myself, that they too may be truly sacrificed. You see the substitutionary idea there? Many other passages speak of Christ as our sacrifice, which, which implies a substitution for us. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says these things. I put two passages together here. Hebrews 9, 7, and then 14 
through 15 of chapter 9. In the Old Testament times, only the priest entered, in the, entered into the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they had been committed in ignorance. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself unblemished to God, Shouldn't that settle the whole ransom theory right then? He offered himself unblemished to God. He did not offer himself unblemished to Satan with whatever respect is due Benny Hinn. That's one of the ones that holds that. I mean, he didn't offer himself to Satan. He offered himself to God, unblemished to God, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. That's going to, that's going to be what we close with. So hang in there with that thought. There's a reason that we cover all this. And it's not just to make us arrogant because we know all about redemption and substitutionary atonement. We need to change the way we live. Or at least most of us do. We need to live more like we appreciate it. For this reason, or we, live, we need to live more like we even understand what was paid for us. That would be like somebody buying one of those $90 million Van Goghs and then putting it in the garage. That doesn't make any sense. There's no, you, you would be paying once, you, you'd be understanding the value of it at the auction, but then when you brought it home, you wouldn't, we wouldn't be placing any value on it at all. We need to bring Christ home. Yes, we, we recognize his value when we kneel at the altar, or however you came to Christ, when you walked down the aisle or when you sat in your seat, which is actually the most effective way, and told God the Father through your, he reads your thoughts that you're trusting him. We recognized it then. Why don't we take it home? Don't put him in the garage and shut the door. For Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, now that he has died, as a ransom. There's that word again, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So, eighth, Christ presented himself as a consecrated sacrifice. Ninth, Christ's death was, was for us, that is, on another's behalf. The Greek word huper, H-U-P-E-R, huper, often, now not always, but often implies substitution. Luke 22 Chapter, chapter 22, verse 19 through 20 says, He took bread. You're familiar with this passage. He took bread. He broke it. He gave it to them, saying, This bread uh, represents my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you on your behalf. In John chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus says, I lay down my life, you pair, for the sheep, on behalf of the sheep as a substitute for the sheep. Tenth, Christ's death, and Christ's death for us, substitution is explicit in the term anti, meaning instead of. He died instead of me. Eleventh, expiation, or the New American New International Version calls it atoning sacrifice, is used of Christ's death, implies a substitutionary sacrifice. In John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he is the propitiation, he's the substitution, he's the satisfaction for our sins. Not for ours alone, but for the sins of the entire world. And finally, twelfth, appeasing God's wrath by Christ's death implies a substitutionary death. Paul affirms in, in chapter 3, verse 25 of Romans, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And now we know that the blood of Christ is a pregnant verbal symbol representing what? The entirety of the saving work of Christ on the cross. So the, the, whole, the whole thing. Not, not to denigrate in any way the physical death, but it's more than just that. We shouldn't minimize it in that way. The value of something is reflected. The value we place upon something is reflected 
and the price that was paid for it. What value does an understanding of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ have on our own life with God? What value does it serve? Well, I think it has great value. We've talked about it before. Let me just review very briefly as we close. It has great value in that we understand the price that was paid for us. And when we understand how God valued us, every one of us, we will live another way. As we stated in the beginning of of our time uh, here, it is an orthodox thing that that all people believe in in some sort of atoning work of Christ. All Christians do. But we believe that that sacrifice was paid to the Father, not to Satan. Because we could not pay that, and Satan certainly uh, had nothing coming to him. But as we come to understand redemption and substitutionary atonement, we have a greater appreciation for what God has done for us. And we come to love God more because of it. If you don't, something's wrong. Something is terribly wrong. If you can, if you can listen to a verse like that, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Through his blood, through this death that he had, if, if we can listen to something like that and it doesn't affect us, something's wrong. And you need to go to God in intense prayer tonight and find out what it is. What is it that, what, why, Father, do I not value what you did for me? Something is wrong with us, not with the Father. We develop a burning desire to serve him from a sense of love and not just merely duty. You know, some people say, well, I, I can't do that. I, I've got to go to Bible class on Wednesday night. I, I can't do that. I've I got to go to church on Sunday morning. No, you don't got to. hope you want to. Big difference. One's out of love, the other's out of duty. And maybe we start by serving him out of duty, but we need to develop a love for him so that we serve him out of love. We stop thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Now, I told you God values us, but I also told you we were his enemies when he valued us. Now, that's, that should take any arrogance right out of us. We did nothing to deserve that, and yet he still valued me. That blows me away. And we can never take any credit for our own salvation. How blasphemous it is for people to try to work their way to heaven. Because we were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, from our empty manner of life. But with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb without spot and without blemish.